today uh, we have a very special treat. Uh, my friend Mary Beth is going to be sharing with us. And so you can um, go and welcome her here to the front. Mary Beth is a student at Asbury Seminary, and she is gearing up to finish up here um, in the near future, and she's very excited about that. Mary Beth is also um, on a path, uh, kind of an ordination path within the United Methodist Church in a different state, and she's really excited about kind of gearing up to, to go into pastoral ministry, and so she uh, came to embrace and visited and just loved this church, and um, one thing that seminary students have to do is what they call mentored ministry. And it's a time where they have to, like, kind of do an internship at a local congregation. And they also encourage them to get in kind of ministries that are reaching out beyond the church walls. And so Embrace is a, a place where folks sometimes like to come. And Mary Beth loved our church so much that she asked if she could do her mentored ministry here. And so um, we've been ha happy to have her as a ministry intern here at our church, primarily working on Monday nights at the gathering and then also mentoring um, at Common Good with the after-school program. And so Mary Beth is the kind of person that she's just willing to jump in and do whatever is needed and just trust that God's going to be with her through it all. And so um, yesterday when Christina texted her and said, hey, could you have your sermon done one, more, one day early, and could you preach on Sunday morning also, uh, she, of course, said, yeah, I'd love to. And so um, let's give Mary Beth a, a round of applause one more time. And I'm going to get out of the way and turn it over to Mary Beth, and she has a, a word to share with us this morning. So exciting. Yeah. It's so cool to be here. And it is just genuinely um, such an honor to get to share a message here today. I do love this church, and I've been coming here for about a year off and on. Um, and so it's just very cool to get to be here and to get to stand in. Um, fortunately, like Christina said yesterday, not very often does somebody have something nearly prepared um, when somebody falls sick. So this was very lucky. The Lord is so kind to us. Um, so fortunately, our text for this week is not too scary. We are only talking about the apocalypse. Um, and so I know that having somebody that you've probably not seen before come up and announce that the text is about the end times could feel a little bit unnerving, but I think it'll be fun. So let's buckle in. Um, so in that vein, I thought it might be helpful to get us into the mindset um, of apocalypse um, to share a little bit about um, an apocalypse that we is all very recent in our collective memory, the year of our Lord 2020. Um, and I know each of us could probably share a long story about all of the ways that 2020 impacted our lives. Um, obviously, COVID sent our nation into a bit of turmoil. There was political unrest, economic instability, the loss of jobs and homes, and so much tragic loss of life. Racial injustice came to a head far too many times, and the shockwaves of COVID really deepened the political divides that were already rampant in our nation. And so we had to adjust to life in this new normal and accept that all of these things were just going to keep coming and keep happening. And how do we, how do we adjust, right? And on top of that, I think all of us sort of had individual losses that we faced. I know I graduated college via Zoom, and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to a lot of people. Um, I lost a lot of relationships. I had struggles with my mental health. And I moved here to Kentucky with 
a brand new school, a new state, and I didn't know anybody. I do not recommend doing that during a pandemic. That was hard. Um, and so I call all of these images and memories back to our memory because I think it's a context that we can relate to from our recent past um, of a time when the world seemed like it was just falling apart at the seams, one piece at a time. And that's much like the imagery that we're offered in our text this morning. So I'll go ahead and read that for us. It's the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. It says, when some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near, but do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues. There will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. That's not the kind of text that you want to preach on your first Sunday in a new church. But I do believe that this text was meaningful to the original audience, and I think that it still offers us something very meaningful today. So let me set the stage for you a little bit. So we're in the Gospel of Luke, and if you've been here before for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for several months now. Um, And the Gospel of Luke is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible, and at this point, we're coming near to the end of Jesus' life and ministry. And so... In the chapters prior to this passage that I just read, Jesus had just arrived in Jerusalem, and he's been spending a lot of time in the temple where he's been seeing a lot of injustice occurring. So people had turned the temple into a marketplace, and religious leaders were questioning his authority, and the rich were giving with absolutely no generosity, but the poor were giving everything that they had. And so now, Jesus has an opportunity to address his disciples, and it's one of his last chances to do this before he would leave them. And so what he shares here is the way that the temple, this place that was so valuable to the Jews and their religious life, but also where a lot of social and economic injustice is going on, this temple is going to be destroyed. And so not only that, the earth is going to see a lot of devastation, and the disciples are going to be persecuted. 
So now is a great opportunity to pause and talk a little bit about this apocalyptic language uh, that's being used. Apocalyptic meaning this sounds like the end of the world. Um, and I think it's important to talk about, at least for a minute, because I think sometimes um, the writing like this is very scary. Um, when I spoke with Christina on Monday night, she said, so how are you feeling about this passage? And I said, yikes. And I said, how are you feeling about this passage? And she, she said, yikes. And in all honesty, when I see stuff like this in scripture, I want to just skip over it and hope that it doesn't apply to me and move on to the really nice love your neighbor type stuff. Um, but yet, it's here for us to deal with. And so I do think that understanding the place of language like this can ease that tension a little bit. So throughout the Bible, different writers will sometimes write in this fashion, right, telling their original audience of some sort of turmoil that lies ahead. And these passages all have a lot in common. Some of them use very unsettling and challenging imagery. Many talk about a time of unrest or turmoil that will some, in some way culminate in um, some form of judgment or talk of eternity. Um, sometimes they're talking about the near future or a distant future. But the word apocalypse itself simply refers to a revealing or an unveiling. So that means that it's supposed to reveal to us some truth about the world. And so notice I did not say some incredibly clear and universal and literally applicable truth about the world. So these events could come to pass exactly as they're listed in some very measurable and predictable way or these events could come to pass in a way that's completely unexpected. But I think that trying to figure out exactly how and when these events are going to come to pass is pretty much impossible. Many have tried to predict the end of the world, and many have failed, as we are still here. But I think that perhaps it's because that is not the point of this passage. I think that perhaps we could do much greater work by trying to understand what that underlying, revealed, unveiled truth is. And so when we view apocalyptic language in this way, not as some horrifying and condemning prescription of events that are going to bring terror upon us, but just as a way of writing that can sort of point us to truth and the truth about God and God's relationship to us, it can feel a little bit less daunting to tackle. So what is this truth? The way that I see it in this passage that I read, this truth is that hard times will inevitably come, but we have every reason to hold on to hope. And I want to make sure that that line does not come off as oversimplified or shallow, because minimizing suffering is the last thing that I want to do here. Um, Clearly, the hard times listed here are dismal, like wars, insurrection, earthquakes, famines, and plagues, and persecution. That is all so heavy, and many of those things actually reflect the real lives of the disciples that, that Jesus is talking to. Um, they were persecuted, and they were betrayed and put on trial, but, and, and you and I and every person in this room can talk about the ways that we experience suffering in this world. All of these things, the, the hardships that we face, illness and anxiety and oppression and conflict and isolation and death even, all of these things are inevitable and they're going to touch all of us. But in this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, though it sounds a little bit harsh to hear all of this at once, 
he's trying to prepare his disciples for a coming reality. So remember, this is one of the last conversations that Jesus gets to have with his disciples before his crucifixion. So this is his opportunity to be a little bit transparent with them and prepare them for the fact that the road ahead is not going to be easy. Some of the disciples had this idea that the end is coming soon and we just got to hang out a little bit longer and we're going to see salvation. But this conversation from Jesus is his way of letting them know that that's not exactly how it's going to come to pass. So in the same way, we know that our lives are not going to be easy. And I think sometimes I can trick myself into thinking, well, I'm a Christian and I know God and like, should be smooth sailing from here on out. And Jesus, the good friend that he is, reminds us that the road ahead is not in fact that easy. This conversation reminds me a little bit of going to the dentist. Um, the last time I went to the dentist a few months ago, I had to get some cavities filled. And I was sitting in the chair very nervous. And the dentist came in and he explained every single step of the process of getting a cavity filled. He said, we're going to bring this big, long needle and we're going to numb you. And we, you're, we're going to take a look at your cavities and we're going to drill into your teeth. It's going to sound and smell horrible. And then we're going to fill, fill your cavities and then we're going to grind them into the shape of teeth and I thought that, and I thought to myself I wish I did not know all of those things why are you telling me this it was very rude but then I wish they would have just done it without telling me but then I thought about it some more and then I was like this would be horrible if I didn't know what was going on how much scarier would it be if I went in completely blind and so I think in that, there's something valuable about knowing the hard things that lie ahead. This is a bit of the heart of the apocalyptic literature that we're reading. And it seems like Jesus wants to communicate with us that even if we are doing everything right, suffering will come. And knowing this, we might be able to better prepare for it. And so some of the things that were listed here in this passage did indeed come to pass. The temple was actually destroyed about 40 years after this conversation. The disciples were arrested and persecuted. Wars did break out. But Jesus is very careful to remind them that this is not the end. He writes in verse 9, these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. So the tricky thing about all of this discussion about the apocalypse is that once bad things start happening and, and sort of piling up, everyone goes, wait a second, is, is this it? Is this the end? That maybe even still happens today, if that's familiar. And yet, as is evidenced that we're still here today, that was not the end. So what does that mean for us, for those who are promised suffering in life to continue on when this isn't the end? Jesus reassures us in this passage that we have everything that we need. By his grace, we can endure hardship and trust in the promises of Christ. The last two verses of this passage assure us, not a hair of your head will perish. By endurance, you will gain your souls. This is our hope in the suffering. And this hope that we have, though, it's not empty, it's not unfounded, and it's far beyond the crossing our fingers, blind optimism kind of hope. It's rooted in the character of Christ 
and, and we can begin to realize these things by diving into the handful of commands that Jesus gives us throughout this passage. Um, these commands are guideposts that offer us a little bit of insight into the direction of that hard work of finding hope in the suffering. So the first command is given in verse 8. He says, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near, but do not go after them. And for me, this, this command feels a little bit tricky. You know, when teachers and religious authorities claim that they are sent from Jesus, how am I supposed to know who is telling the truth? In order to know who has the heart of Jesus and who is trying to deceive, there's one clear solution, and that's that we need to know the heart of Jesus really well. We can do this by taking a step back and asking whether the people who could be leading us astray really align with the character of Jesus as he's revealed in the stories of scripture. John reminds us, Jesus reminds us in John 10 that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and so they're able to recognize a stranger in their midst. And so in the same way, the more that we get to know the heart of Christ, the more we can recognize when somebody looks a little bit different and is trying to lead us astray. Jesus' next command is immediately following in verse 9. Um, the verse says, When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. So again, our hope here is in the assurance that this is not the end. Our ability to set aside our fear can come from a trust that Jesus is faithful to his promises to the very end. And we don't need to be terrified because Jesus is preparing us for all of these things that are going to happen. And so when we see these things happening, we say, Jesus told me about that. I remember. And I just have to sit tight and trust that the Lord is at work even when things seem like they're falling apart. The next command um, in verses 12 through 15 are preparing the disciples for a really tough scenario. It says, you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name, and this will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. And these disciples, they're not trained speakers, and they're apparently not even rehearsed speakers. But yet, they're encouraged to believe that their witness is going to be effective in the most stressful moment of their life through Jesus' power alone. As a person who experiences the occasional anxiety, uh, I can say that there are not a lot of major conversations that I've had that I haven't had a hundred times in my head in the days leading up to it. And even like growing up in youth group, we were told to have a little elevator pitch of our faith of Jesus at the ready, just in case a friend puts us on the spot and makes us tell our life story with Jesus in 30 seconds that you always have to be prepared. And so this is crazy that he's saying, don't be prepared. I'll tell you, don't worry. These disciples, knowing that they could face arrest and trial, should willingly not think about the kind of things to say to defend themselves against their own lives. How does that work? So this is because Jesus is promising them that he will be with them, that 
that he will be empowering them and that he will give them words that are far more eloquent and far more convincing than anything that they could prepare for themselves, right? And so this resonates with another account of Jesus' last conversations with his disciples, um, but this time in the Gospel of John. Um, in this conversation, Jesus promises his disciples that he will send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with them. The Holy Spirit will remind them of Jesus' teaching, will testify to the witness of Christ, and will guide them into truth. And the same Holy Spirit promised to the disciples in the Gospel of John is the same Spirit that will be with them, that he's assuring will be able to defend them in their time of trial. And not only can they safely hope in these steady promises of Jesus, but they can put their trust in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is at work within them and will speak through them when things get tough. So this final command that Jesus offers in this passage lies in the very last verse. It says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. So I know this doesn't quite sound like a command, but that word you will gain in the original Greek is really more written like a command. So it's saying you will need to be in, in you will need to have endurance, so gain your life. Put in the work to gain your life. Other translations write stand firm and you will win your life. So this is a command to endure. Endurance, or we sometimes see it written in the New Testament as perseverance. They're the same word. Um, it's something that we're called to time and time again throughout all the rest of the New Testament. Um, in the book of James, for example, he tells us that endurance is the product of a well-tested faith and that it breeds in us maturity and wholeness. For those with this kind of perseverance, James writes, they will receive the crown of life. Right, Hebrews 12, we talk about the cloud of witnesses that encourages us in our faith. And that, that same passage tells us to run the race of life with endurance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who displayed the ultimate picture of endurance through his death on the cross. And fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith who sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. And so by identifying with the sufferings of Jesus, we can make our suffering a little bit more like his suffering. And we're able to follow in his example and partake in the glory that is to come. Finally, Romans 15.4 tells us explicitly of this com uh, connection between endurance and hope. It says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. So despite the trials and the suffering that are absolutely going to come our way, and despite whatever is going on in the world that makes it seem like it is falling apart at the seams, we have the benefit of the testimonies of those who have gone before us, both throughout the body of scripture and in our own lives, to remind us that we can indeed endure and we can gain our lives. And this is our reason for hope in the suffering. So let me clarify, endurance through trial does not mean just waiting passively and ducking our head from all of the bad things that are, that are going on around us, from the debris of a crumbling world. Endurance requires continued effort. 
So this is maintaining our focus on Jesus, understanding the truth that we are called to, continuing to get to know Jesus more and more, and understanding his heart, whether it's through study of scripture or prayer or meditation. We have to continue discerning and wrestling with hard things, and we have to support other people along the journey with us. And I'm not a runner, but I hear <laughs> that building endurance doesn't come by just passively standing near a race and waiting for it to finish. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of hard work involved, and you have to put in the work and train yourself to be ready to engage with the work that's before us. But there is good news. You have everything that you need. So to take us back to that imagery of 2020, and I remember feeling in 2020 like I had no idea when things were ever going to get better. I remember thinking, this is, this is the end. Like, everything seems horrible. There doesn't feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And things felt bad for a really, really long time. But each of us here is living proof that two, three years later, like, we're here, right? Endurance is possible, even through some of life's toughest trials. Even during seasons of life where things feel the most bleak, you can endure, and that endurance will produce hope. Hope doesn't let that story end. Hope recognizes that though your feelings and your experiences of suffering are inc incredibly valid, it won't always feel this way. And hope testifies to the goodness of God that transcends our suffering. Hope has faith that even in persecution, not a hair on our head will perish, for we can gain our souls. And hope assures us that though we live in this world that's rampant with suffering, the heart of God is for restoration, redemption, and making all things new. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.